Clean, non-toxic, plant-based, and made in California. Earth source skin and body care that elevates your vibe. We feel best when we're living clean and simple with products that fit our conscious lifestyle. The average hair product has over 30 ingredients, consisting primarily of alcohols, toxins, and other junk. Jack Henry's best-selling clay pomade has a total of four ingredients, organic French lavender and MCT oil, beeswax, and bentonite clay. These ingredients nourish your hair and scalp while giving your hair an all-day hold, humidity and sweat resistant while adding thickness, texture, and volume. Visit jackhenry.co and enter promo code TWF at checkout for 20% off. another episode of the way forward podcast with your host alex zek this episode we had andy kaufman can't call him doctor he uh he's like dr cowan in that you'd rather just go by andy so we had uh dr andy kaufman also known as andy on the podcast this episode and i mean this is one of my favorite topics to to cover what he is most known for probably uh the the issues regarding germ theory. I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to give too much away for what we covered in the episode, but another phenomenal discussion. And, you know, Andy is a lot more spiritually inclined than I even thought. And I sort of just some of the ways that he speaks, I kind of had an idea of what he thought with regards to our true nature as human beings, but he's a very spiritually grounded and spiritually minded person. And it was cool to hear some of the last few things we talked about and his uh, answers to the last two questions were, were great. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I know I sure did. So without further ado, here's the episode with Dr. Andy Kaufman. Uh, yeah. So I was in the army and like I graduated from West Point in 2016. And at that time, Kelly was still living in New York and my mom who had been on multiple psychotropic medications uh, like multiple benzodiapines and SSRIs. And is that, uh, is that because of you joining the army? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, like in all seriousness, uh, like there's a, a lot of trauma in my childhood that like I endured that my mom also endured my dad, a lot of, a lot of things going on. And she just went on psych meds. She went to go see a psychiatrist and they put her on psych meds. And then she got worse and worse and worse was in and out of mental hospitals, had multiple suicide attempts. And then as like a last resort type of thing, uh, saw Dr. Brogan in New York in 2016 and Kelly being Kelly, she helped facilitate my mom changing her own life. And my mom completely reversed everything in a matter of three to four months. Um, uh, I mean, obviously she still had elements of psych withdrawal, but then also the trauma coming up for the first time that she had never taken the steps to heal. And, uh, that, started my journey of like questioning my own reality right when I commissioned as a second lieutenant in the army at the time. And like, yeah, let's just say it's good that I'm out of the army now. Cause I do not align with anything that the army or the government for that matter does. So, yeah. So like this whole COVID <laughs> situation this last year, right? Like I have all these things that I want to speak about. Cause I've just obsessed over the last four and a half years, the true nature of disease, what is health, 
both of my kids are unvaccinated, you know, like just obsessed. And then COVID happens. And I'm like, I got to start speaking. I started speaking, started resonating with a lot of people, but I've had that, like having to toe the line of not saying anything that could get me in a lot of trouble while being in the army. But now that I'm out of the army, I can say whatever I want to, but then my account on Instagram just gets deleted for the third time. So they just keep taking away my ability to speak, but yeah, that's that. Wow, that's quite a story. So, you know, it made me think of the uh, that famous um, lecture from West Point that's on YouTube where they talk about all the uh, future uh, technologies, like, um, you know, brain machine interfaces and things like that. You're familiar with it? Yeah, I think someone's you privy to any of those kind of lectures when you were in school. <laughs> Hell no, no. Uh, I did whatever I could. I mean, like we had a lot of a mandatory lectures to go to, obviously, as cadets, but I never saw anything like that. Or if I did, I probably just didn't pay attention at all. Right, right. Lectures, like most of the mandatory lectures we had to go to, unless it was like well, listen, there was plenty of top secret military research going on where I went to school. You know, and Where I did you go to school at again? MIT. Okay. Oh yeah. I forget. Yeah. A lot of stuff going on there, including a quantum dot tattoo. So well now, yeah. And actually, you know, some of the people involved with that were my professors. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Oh, that is really I mean, ironic. and then you have Dr. Shiva over there at the same time they're doing that. I wonder, you know. I don't anyway, I'm supposed to be interviewing him coming up. So we'll see what he thinks about things. Oh, wow. That'll be good. That'll be really interesting. Yeah. I have, uh, I have some thoughts about him and that whole thing. So that'll, that'll be good. That'll be good to hear. So, um, I actually just want to start very casually. Let me just fix one, one thing with my lighting here. Just take okay. a second. Cool, cool. We keep it casual here, guys. It's good. Get a glass of water, maybe some scotch, whatever you want. No scotch. I'm not, I'm not the, the South African germ guy. All right. So I want to just start with like a brief background. I mean, I'm sure by now, if you're listening to this episode and you don't know who Dr. Kaufman is, then you haven't been keeping up with anything that I or anyone in this community has been doing. But if you could just give like a brief background on what led you to as brief as you want to on your current perceptions with regards to um, you know, taking it even a step above terrain theory, because I think a lot of people conflate like the traditional terrain theory is that viruses and bacteria can be harmful, but it's if you have a clean system, you're a clean person, you don't have uh, unhealthy cellular uh, whatever, then you are more prone to being sick by those, right? Versus like you take it a step further, as does Stefan Lenka, Don Lester, David Parker, uh, Dr. Cowan. Um, and you're saying that viruses and bacteria per the available evidence are not harmful or disease causing. Yeah, well, I think, uh, that's exactly what terrain theory says. Also, there's no, uh, exceptions in terrain theory. The only time, um, you know, it's a misperception of what's harmful. Like the, when bacteria, for example, um, are responding to uh, an injury or a disease in your body to try and clean it up, they secrete waste products that cause inflammation, right? And that makes it uncomfortable. It gives you symptoms, but that's actually beneficial to your body. It's just that we have learned, right? That any bodily discomfort is 
a disease or something that we have to get rid of. And I'll, I'll explain a little further that actually these bodily sensations, especially pain, is really, really important because it provides us information. So early in my career, I worked with a young woman who had diabetes and she had the, the kind that starts in childhood, uh, type one diabetes. And so even though she was a young adult, she had what's called peripheral neuropathy from that where the sensory nerves in her like extremities and the fingers and toes were not working properly. Mm. And the, one of the things was she had no or limited or, or no pain sensation. So she went to the beach and this was, you know, in a really warm place and walked on the hot sand, but with her bare feet, but didn't realize it was burning her feet because she had no pain mm -hmm. sensation and ended up with second degree burns on her feet. Wow. Like I'm talking about the kind where it's all blisters up and, you know, I mean, she couldn't walk. She was in a wheelchair for the next three weeks at work. Wow. <laughs> okay. Wow, wow. So, you know, this is why we, we've lost sight of that these, that our body expresses itself in various ways for a purpose. And that discomfort that we feel if we get a lot of infections, for example, is trying to tell us that we are putting too much poison in our body mm -hmm. and that we may not get that message because we're not even thinking that it is a message. Instead, we're trying to suppress it and live according to this life of that we should not be experienced discomfort or pain, that that's something, a mistake that our body makes that we need to correct through modern medicine, right? By taking a synthetic chemical that will numb us from it, uh, for example. Um, Is that a weird shift for you though? Because like you went to medical school, right? And you were practicing as a psychiatrist and now like what, like, where was that shift? Well, I mean, it's a, it, it occurs gradually because what I'm really talking about is a paradigm shift. And this is why it's difficult for people to look at this argument, even though logically it's not difficult or intellectually it's not difficult. It's difficult because it forces you to challenge your underlying belief system about illness and health, mm -hmm. um, the so-called paradigm. And that is really difficult to do. And for, you know, one thing about human nature that makes it difficult is that we always want to replace it with something else that's more valid, like not create a void, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of knowledge. It's really uncomfortable, I think, for people to once feel they understand something in nature and then to suddenly not have that explanation because so much of your understanding of the world is based upon that especially when it comes to health and, and illness when you think about germs and infection but i don't want to mislead people and say that you know germs are never harmful because everything can be harmful mm -hmm. <laughs> so people i love harmful, that right people i mean that's harmful. an important distinction though because like yes. So many people are taking it to the extreme and saying that like in no instance ever can anything ever be harmful. Like with, when it comes to this paradigm, like uh, there's a lot of nuance that a lot of people probably aren't addressing effectively with this too. Right. But, and it's also, it's actually pretty simple to avoid the harm in almost all cases. Um, like, so what I'm talking about, for example, is if you have, let's say, you know, some meat that uh, you're storing, 
and you let it go for too long and it spoils, right? And then you eat it, you get sick. Now, well, what happened there? So what most people think happened is that there was like bacteria that are infectious that grow on the meat. And then when you eat it, they invade your body and make you sick. Like they continue to grow and eat your flesh, right? And make you sick. But that's not what happens at all. What happens is that bacteria grow on dead flesh. That's their role in nature is to decompose that flesh so that it can basically be regenerated into new life, right? It'll go into the mm -hmm. soil. Now we've created some artificial conditions, but when we eat meat that is partly decomposed, basically what happens is that the bacteria make waste products just mm -hmm. like we do. I mean, you wouldn't eat your feces or the feces of another person because you know it would probably make you sick, right? <laughs> and so it's the same thing. You're eating essentially the, the feces of the bacteria that's eating dead flesh, mm -hmm. right? And dead flesh has a lot of complicated molecules in it. So the waste products are going to be poisonous. Um, whereas, you know, if the bacteria maybe is just eating like a simple, uh, you know, culture medium, it won't necessarily create that toxin. Oh, we're going to get into culture mediums in this discussion too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's interesting experiments on like the bacteria that they say causes tetanus, mm. right? Uh, Clostridium tetani, I believe it's called. It's an anaerobic bacteria. And when that bacteria grows on certain things in nature, like cow manure, it secretes this toxin. And when they put this toxin in a person, it causes the muscle spasms of tetanus, right? Which is a very bad disease. Um, however, when they put the bacteria in the person, even if it grows on the dead flesh in the anaerobic environment, it doesn't cause the disease. Mm -hmm. So it's really the toxin um, not an invasive infection. Like when you have bacteria, like let's say you have a, a limb that is turned to gangrene because of frostbite, for example. Well, what's happening is that the bacteria there is eating the dead flesh. And, uh, you know, so that it's not going to cause more problems because if it just chemically broke down, it would definitely be poisonous to your body. Now, the unfortunate part is the bacteria can also create some waste while it's eating that dead flesh that mm. can also be poisonous, right? And that's when people get uh, septic shock from gangrene, right? So that, but that's- Am I wrong on this? Is, is, are these what's called bacteriophages? No, not at all. These that's are, a different thing, right? Because that's yeah, a particle these, that comes out. Okay. These are, these are chemicals that the bacteria secrete as their waste products. So it'd be gotcha. like the same thing as urea in your urine. Okay. Right. It's just, and urea is, uh, can be poisonous as well. Right. So, and uh, that's why, you know, probably your urine doesn't grow any uh, or microorganisms normally uh, because of that. Uh, it's a nitrogenous waste. So you have to take these, you know, understand the context of what's going on. And in that situation, really the problem is, is that you killed that part of your body by, you know, frostbite, which basically makes it so the blood doesn't flow there. Mm -hmm. You know, essentially think about the blood just freezing um, and or, you know, maybe you smashed it with a hammer accidentally. Right. So that's the cause of the of the injury. 
And, uh, but then, you know, sometimes things go a little bit awry, like the same, a similar thing happens in this disease called C. diff, or it's caused, they say it's caused by C. diff, which is another clostridium bacteria. Uh, the disease is called pseudomembranous colitis, which, you know, no one can say uh, except a few people. But essentially what happens we'll is say it's really bad diarrhea that could kill you. And you can get blood in there and all kinds of bad stuff. And this only occurs when people receive antibiotics and other interventions where they have like tubes sticking out of their body. Mm. And basically the bacteria that they say causes it lives normally in everybody's colon. It's in your colon and mine right now, and it's not causing any problems. And the reason it becomes a problem is because basically they kill all of the other bacteria that live in a community because microorganisms, just like our own cells really, don't live alone in a, you know, just with their own kind. They live in these communities and they have to exchange information in order to survive. You mentioned bacteriophages earlier those actually really don't occur in nature much. They occur in artificial laboratory conditions where oh. bacteria is under major stress. So they take the bacteria out of the community where there's all different kinds living together and they take one single kind and put it in a pure culture and then in laboratory conditions that it doesn't have the enrichment that it would in the natural environment. And that stress is what leads to bacteriophages uh, mm -hmm. forming. Okay. And uh, so what we're just talking about here is just normal bacteria growing and then secreting a waste product depending on its food source. It would be just like if you had a compost pile, for example, like, and you just started with just like your vegetable waste, you know, like your lettuce cores and, uh, you know, and pits and, and seeds and, and vegetable waste. Well, you know, you, you'd have a nice compost. It would, uh, you know, kind of be pretty mellow. It wouldn't be too stinky and it would slowly break down. Now, what would happen if you added, you know, a couple of uh, dead squirrels to the mix? I mean, the bacteria would change drastically, right? Yeah, everything yeah. would change. So first of all, you, you first, you'd probably get some, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, those kind of animals like um, uh, crows or uh, scavengers, scavengers, yeah. scavengers, right? You might get some insects uh, come there and then you get a totally different mix of bacteria and fungi and molds, right? And, and you know, it would get stinky. Yeah, <laughs> stinky. Right, yeah. it would, yes, it would exactly. smell bad. And so what did you do? You didn't put any different bacteria or germs in there, right? You just changed the food source. And then the microorganisms changed their biochemistry, basically, to make different waste products based on a different food source. They even changed shape and species to better, you know, digest and process that food source. And so that's just what can happen in your body in different circumstances. And when it gets really bad and stinky is when you alter it with poisons, basically, especially ones that kill your normal community of bacteria. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. Now I want to transition though, into the topic of the day, which I'm sure you're at this point, so sick of talking about by now, but maybe not though, because, you know, 
I want to, I want to preface this. I, I remember watching you and Dr. Cowan, you, you guys were together and Derek bros was interviewing you and he had just got done talking with Joe Mercola and he brought up how Joe Mercola thinks that what you and uh, Dr. Cowan and then Stefan Lenka and, and Don Lester, David Park, Parker, Torsten Engelbrecht, all these people, it isn't just like you too. That's the other thing about this. Yeah. There's so many other people. Um, Dr. Sam Bailey, who I've just found, uh, they think that what you are doing, especially with regards to the sort of health freedom slash natural health movement is a distraction. And the answer that you and Dr. Cowan gave is the sentiments that I share exactly in that if we don't get to the root of the issue of germ theory right now, right now, we will be playing this game forever. Okay. We figure out COVID-19 isn't what, what we were told. We, the, the tide shifts as it, it appears to be actually right now, but if we don't get to the root, the actual root of what the issue is, then okay, COVID-21, COVID-23, some other new variant of some other new thing. If we don't get to the root right now, then we will be playing this game forever. Absolutely. This, this isn't the first merry-go-round either, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, we can go back to the 70s with the swine flu. Look what happened with that vaccine. Um, you know, there we can talk about HIV all day long, um, and that had a profound impact on the way people grew up and form relationships and on the fertility rate. Um, and then we've had just a string, it seems like every four years, just about like clockwork, you know, in the 2000s that we've been threatened with some type of epidemic and at some times the governments have spent money on vaccines unnecessarily that were later thrown away, uh, things like that. But we've had Zika, Ebola, you know, SARS, bird flu, swine flu, um, uh, Eastern equine encephalitis. I'm sure I've missed a few more. You know, I just found out that uh, one of the index cases of that was completely based on a misreporting to cover up someone's drug overdose. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, um, you know, we're talking about a pattern here and, and now that they have achieved some major uh, advancement of the globalist agenda, they're not gonna stop with this strategy. I mean, look at how much more effective it is than uh, the terrorist uh, strategy. Still playing on the same mentality though, right? Like it's, it's, it's in multiple ways. The, the fear paradigm, like creating this false perception using the media and official sources of fear, but then also like an us versus them mentality and then being fearful of one population of people. Well, you know, these tactics go back a long time in history and fear is always the main manipulator of the masses. And of course, you know, divide and conquer was the strategy, I believe first used historically by Caesar to conquer Gaul after many failed attempts. And you can see both of these things playing out in so many different ways right now. Mm -hmm. You know, divide and conquer is even going on right now among our own truth community where there are people saying that we should avoid people who have been vaccinated and, you know, quarantine from them and, and such, right? So it's, it, it's an agenda that is really pervasive. Yeah. And there's also elements of controlled op, but that's a conversation for another time. But <laughs> I'm not making any accusations. I'm yeah. not saying that it's having the effect of dividing people and 
Absolutely. And people who are divided are much easier to overcome. 100% completely agree with that. And, you know, I guess like this is a good segue into what I had written down as my first question. Um, so from your perspective, what is COVID-19 and what is SARS-CoV-2? And I have some uh, subsequent questions getting deeper and deeper into, into the discussion. So, Well, uh, it's essentially a psychological operation to um, perpetuate a hidden but yet transparent disclosed agenda. Simple as that, right? How's that for a brief answer? <laughs> That's, a brief answer. That's good. That's so good. Okay. What we do is, you know, it is a uh, imaginary vehicle to move that agenda forward, and it's the predicate of the entire operation. That's what's so. That's what's so. I guess not frustrating, but uh, I mean, it is frustrating. But it's also tough to get people to understand. Like even even people within our community, so to speak, conflate the two like COVID-19, which is just a, a series of symptoms that they have labeled as a new disease. Right. And then SARS-CoV-2 is the supposed cause of those symptoms. And like, I don't think anyone, even you is saying COVID-19, those symptoms don't exist. Nobody is denying that people get sick with disease. Like, but the difference well, is, is you'd have to be really foolish to say people don't get sick. Exactly. But that's the issue, though, is the powers that be the media when they frame people like us, they're saying that we are denying that people are getting sick or they're trying to create that perception that we're COVID-19 deniers. That's that is why they have to um, use things like censorship and keep out any actual debate, because it would be very simple to rectify that, because I would just ask one simple question, because I would say COVID-19 the illness, right? That there is no new illness. Mm. Um, and you can get to that with just one question. Okay, so you think there is a new illness. Well, tell me one reliable way to distinguish who has this new illness versus who has the same symptoms, but an old illness, like influenza or, you know, something else. And they would bring up the PCR test more than likely. And this is actually the second question. So what are, what are your thoughts? Like, I, I'm, I'm sure you've dissected the Corman-Drosten paper. And for anyone listening, the Corman-Drosten paper is Corman and Drosten. They established the SARS-CoV-2, uh, the quote SARS-CoV-2 protocol using PCR to test uh, to see if someone has SARS-CoV-2 after what, what is supposed to be from an epidemiological perspective. When you're diagnosing someone, you're supposed to actually establish that they have a series of symptoms first and then confirm that with a test. But we've thrown that out the window when it's come to this. And now we're just using the PCR test. What are your thoughts of the PCR test? What are your thoughts of the Corman-Drosten protocol and its use using PCR to determine whether someone, quote, has SARS-CoV-2, which is really just an in silico uh, sequence? But yeah, your, your answer on that. Well, you know, really, we could sort of write a book on answering this question <laughs> because there are many different angles but i think here are the like the most important uh points so one is with respect to corman and drosten they developed the protocol for this you know so-called test which is not it's experimental never been approved by any agency um based on just a made-up genetic sequence that they did in a computer simulation. They didn't have an actual 
genetic sequence from an organism to create the test from. And to be so, clear, they clearly state that in the paper, right? Like they state that absolutely. in the form and dress. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so just on that very basis, the test is invalid. But the, the second part is that in order to um, use any diagnostic test um, in medicine, and this, by the way, this is something that they actually did teach us in medical school. They did teach us a few things. Um, they taught us that you have to validate a new test against the gold standard, right? And they gave us, a, I remember going through in detail this one particular example of a pulmonary embolism because there's a test called a VQ scan that's easy to administer, but it's not as accurate as the gold standard, which is called a pulmonary angiogram where they actually put dye in the exact vein in your chest that has the blood clot and they see it directly, right? So that's the gold standard. Um, but you could think of a easy example I always talk about, which is pregnancy, because you know the gold standard for pregnancy is a baby comes out in nine months, right? And so if you trying to test a new diagnostic pregnancy test, right? Like let's say using uh, flipping a coin, heads, it's uh, pregnant, tails, not pregnant, right? So you can get a hundred women, flip a coin, wait nine months, and then see how many times was the coin flip correct. And that's called a validation study. And what that does is it gives you an error rate. Because if you say like, let's say the coin flip was accurate 99 out of a hundred times, that's pretty impressive. I think I would use the coin to test, you know, my wife the next, if she were pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. However, most likely it's going to be about 50%, which is going to be close to random chance, right? Because there's about a 50% chance of heads or tails with each flip. So if it comes up 50%, you're going to be like, gosh, that's, we can't tolerate a 50% error rate where this test is no good. Let's go back to the drawing board. With the PCR test, there's never been a validation study, not one. Somehow, even though it's made up based on a hypothetical computer simulated sequence, it's somehow by some people considered a gold standard in some way, even though it has no known error rate. So when you hear people reporting like a false positive rate and a, a number like you know 80% or 20% or any number at all, they're just making that up and you should, you should challenge them. Say like, this is, you know, if you were debating someone, it would be very easy say, Oh, the PCR test. Oh, you know, that's very interesting. Can you point me to the validation study where that's published? Right. And there, there is none. And then, or you could say, Hey, what's the false positive rate based on an actual study and they won't be able to find it right? Because those things don't exist. So right there, it's not a valid test. Wow. It can't be valid because it hasn't undergone even the basic testing to say that it's valid. You know, this is, uh, aside from your videos and, and Dr. Cowan's videos and, and re researching Stefan Lenka's stuff, um, the thing that I want to say really caught my eye with regards to the virus isolation issue is that when I was reading the Corman Dresden paper myself, someone was like, read it for yourself and determine, cause I was so caught up on 
I want to say in like September last year that, Oh, it's just, there's too many false positives because they're, they're, uh, they don't, they have no limit of detection and the cycle threshold is too high for these given tests. But then someone said, no, 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 that doesn't matter. The results are meaningless. Read the paper yourself. And I was like, okay, I will read the paper. And then when I saw the N silico sequencing thing, and they talked about how, because there was no uh, virus isolates available at the time, I was like, wait, wait a second here, no virus isolates available. So how are they determining like that? This is, this is a thing, you know, like how could they even use this test? Uh, what, what basis do they have? You know? So then I started exploring uh, how they sequence the virus. And, you know, it's funny because Stefan Lenka is taking that to a degree, like right now that is unimaginable with his control experiments. And we'll get into that in a minute, but what, what is the sequencing of the virus? Like, how do they determine that from your perspective and your understanding and like where, how do they model SARS-CoV-2 in these sequencing experiments? Well, you know, with just to, to briefly wrap up the PCR, because you know, what they did was basically they used the SARS sequence from 2003, right? Which is the same, uh, they did the same experiments that I'll describe in a minute to get that sequence. They used a PCR primer related to that sequence, then amplified it using PCR, then sequenced whatever they amplified, and then used that, or they did that a few different times with a few different primers, and used those sequences where they were different from the SARS sequence to develop primers for the diagnostic test. Okay. And, um, but they didn't even have purified samples or anything like that. So it's really just all made up stuff. Um, the way, so the same thing with the genome sequence. So, you know, some papers refer to this by its appropriate terminology, I believe called in silico genome, because that means it only exists in a computer, not in the real world. And what they do is they basically start with, and the first one of these was done with how many patients with the disease do you think they would, you know, pool together and do the genome sequencing to compare results? Like they would need thousands of people to actually do that accurately. You'd think so, right? Yeah. They did it from just one single individual. And the only way that they validated that they had COVID-19 was by, of course, the PCR test. So they had, you know, non-specific respiratory symptoms and the positive PCR test and one person. And so, so what they did is they took their lung fluid, you know, which has RNA from a lot of different things, mm -hmm. bacteria, fungi, human cells, right? All the sources of RNA. And they just basically took all the RNA, but only pieces that were relatively short because they, they're using a special technique that can only sequence short pieces. So if they were long, ah, just throw them out. Then, then they, they make what's called a, a cDNA library, but you don't need to know what that is, but just know that they sequenced all of these little strands of RNA or the short ones anyway. And there were 56 and a half million of them and they put them into a computer program, actually not one, two different programs. And each of these programs did the same thing with a different algorithm, which is they tried to match up like pieces, like the ends of pieces 
and then string them together. Like, like, you know, they, yeah. they would match up here and then they now put these two together and try to put one on here, right. And make longer and longer pieces. So out of doing that, each computer came up with about either over or, or close to 1 million different possibilities. <laughs> and they call those contigs. And some of them were pretty short and some of them were pretty long, right? And so how do they know which one was correct? Well, they just picked the longest one. And uh, then what they did is they did, you know, I'm not going to describe every single step, but essentially what they did is they took that and they said, we think this is like a bat coronavirus. <laughs> and uh, because it sort of matches, not quite as much as cats and humans, but it matches. Oh my goodness. And man. so we'll take the genome from the bat coronavirus, which by the way, we actually sequence the same exact way but we're going to use it as a template now and take this theoretical one we just pulled out of the 2 million different combinations from 56 million different sequence strands. And we're going to then make sure it matches. So we're going to add a few bases here and there, right? We're just going to make them up, but put them in there. We might rearrange a few things around, take out a piece here, move it there. The computer will take care of it. And then at the end, will say this is the genome of the virus. <laughs> and okay, so to, to back up, dude, this is just flowing so perfectly right now. Um, I, I actually like structured it in this way on purpose. So, okay, so all of those are predicated off of, for the most part, cell culture experiments. So if nope, we can, nope. no, these that, aren't. That, okay. that just comes right from the lung fluid of the sick person. Wow. Okay. So they're not even based on that. So, okay. The, the virus isolation papers to say that there is a, this new virus or this virus that they have discovered though, if we could get into those. Cause I mean, I can't even imagine the degree to which you and uh, Tom have had to address people saying like, oh, it's isolated here. Here it is. And, you know, I even had that experience the other day and I like, there's just no point arguing with anyone though, where I shared how there's a $1.2 million reward right now for anyone who can prove that uh, SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated and proven to cause disease. And of course, this uh, guy who says he's a virologist comes on my post because it got shared a lot and then comments and says here, here, and here. I click each of those, highlight exactly where it's a viral cell culture that's introduced with bacteria, yada, 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 send it back to him, silence, no response. And, he, and then actually, no, one guy responded and said, you don't get to determine what an isolate is. That's what his response was to me. So well, isn't whoever's offering the money get to determine? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So if you could go into that. I know you've covered this so many times, but I, I still think it's like, I mean, this is one of those things where you just have to beat it over and over and over again. Like, Hey, this is, this is what's going on with these isolation experiments. Right. Well, if you talk to a virologist, first, you have to ask before you have a discussion about isolation, you just have to say, what's the definition of isolation? Mm -hmm. Because when a virologist says it, it means the opposite of what it means when anyone else says it. So like if you, you know, had a pie chart of the world, right, you could have like a tiny little sliver of virologists and then everyone else, and it would be two different definitions. So mm -hmm. what, what we know it to mean is to separate something from everything else. 
what they mean is combine it with other things. And uh, I'm not sure what, how they reason this out, but it all comes down to this. If you wanna discover a new organism, a new species of life, the only way to discover it is to actually see it by itself, apart from other things. Now, in the macro world, when we can see things with our own eyes without you know, magnification, like you know, a bird or a zebra or a chicken. Yeah, you don't need to isolate a brand new bird. Like exactly, like we can isolate it in our visual field and know that it's real. But if we're gonna like say what it's made of or what its genetic sequence is, we do have to separate it from other stuff, right? We got to take it back to the lab, just the chicken. We don't take back, you know, chickens and foxes and, um, you know, game hens, right? We just take the chicken if we're going to study chickens. And when something is so small that you can only see it with an electron microscope, which is a very, you know, unusual piece of equipment, it's very delicate, you have to basically totally beat the crap out of something in order to even put it in that kind of a microscope first, <laughs> okay, to, in order for it to be seen. So it's very, talking about super delicate, tiny, tiny little things, right? And we want to know if, if they really exist. And the only way to know if they really exist is to see them by themselves, like just one thing that we can then take that one thing, we can examine it, we can say, what's it made of? right? We can pull out the genetic material and sequence it. So we do this already with lots of other tiny little things of the same size. Uh, for example, exosomes is one thing we do this with pretty routinely. You can find lots of papers. They will take right out of someone's body fluid, um, like their lung fluid, for example, the same fluid that's used in, in the, these virus experiments, and they can purify out the exosome particles, which are the same size and shape and appearance as they say viral particles are, and have it. So just in a microscope field, you look and all you see are one type of particle that's homogeneous. And then you say, we got it, right? Or you can do further experiments. You say you got something, you know it, something that exists, which is that particle. And now you can do further experiments. You say, what it's, what's it made of? Like for example, there's never been a spike protein taken off a virus particle and studied. When they've, there are studies with spike protein, but they actually make that synthetically in the lab. So it's never been seen on an actual you know, viral particle, but they could, one way they could purify the viral particles if they really have this spike protein is they make an antibody to the spike protein, which we know already exists. They attach that to silicon beads and make a, what's called an affinity column. And you can pour the lung fluid directly in there. And the only thing that will stick to the beads is things with the spike protein mm -hmm. because that antibody will just be for that, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a common procedure that's done. So you could just isolate, you know, purify those viral particles that way. And then you can easily cleave the antibodies off the silicon by denaturing them and then uh, put that into a test tube and look under the microscope like that. That is the kind of experiment that's done with exosomes. And it's also done with viruses of lower organisms like 
of bacteria. We talked about mm -hmm. bacteriophages. They, they don't, by the way, originally they thought they ate the bacteria. That's why they're called that. But later research showed that they're actually um, like spores, that they uh, okay. can regenerate back into bacteria when the environmental conditions become favorable. Okay. And they've also done that. And you mentioned uh, Stefan Lanka. He actually did this himself with a, a so-called giant virus in sea algae, mm -hmm. where he purified it, where it was just by itself. And so when they've done these, they, they can actually take the genetic material right out of those particles directly. Which begs so the question, why don't they when it comes to something like this, right? Well, of course it does. And, you know, the only answer that Tom and I can come up with is the obvious one, because there's, there are no viruses that are making people sick, but yeah, they like could, you know, they could, they could take these particles and put them into an experimental animal and see if they get sick mm -hmm. in the, with the same disease, you know, it'd be very simple. They just prove it very easily one way or the other, if they could find the particles and back by the way, back in the 40s and 50s, they did try endlessly to isolate these particles. And they were never able to because what they found is in the dying tissue from the disease that cells basically, when they are going through the dying process, they break down into little particles. It's the normal disintegration of the cell. Is that called the cytopathic effect, right? Well, that's something that you see under a microscope okay, in gotcha. experiments. Um, but I mean, that does happen, you know, it basically means poisoned or toxic cells. Mm -hmm. And, and when cells do that, they basically break down into particles mm -hmm. and the people doing the virus research at that time realized they, there were no particles that were predominant. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't like they say currently in the textbook where like a virus invades a cell and then it makes millions of copies of itself using the cell's machinery. And then it bursts out of the cell. And, you know, then millions of particles are released. Well, this should be pretty easy to see millions of particles that would be predominant over anything else because nothing else is like that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't see, they never saw that. They only saw a mixture and they're like, well, there's nothing predominant here. Nothing that we separate is an agent of disease in our experiments. And they basically gave up right at the time that Enders performed this totally different tissue culture experiment. And so when a virologist says virus isolation or viral isolate, what they're really talking about is a, a foreign cell culture. Mm -hmm. And the isolate would basically just be the fluid from that cell culture. But it, there's nothing isolated because if you, what they call an isolate, if you looked in the vial, you wouldn't just see one thing by itself. You would see a mixture of a whole bunch of things. And what is, what is, what are the common things that go into the cell culture experiments? Like I know that antibiotics is one, if you could just like list off all the things right. that really create the conditions so, so people understand. Alec, this is a really important point because when you normally like do a cell culture, you put you know, what the cells need and you don't put things they don't need, right? So you give them the optimal nutrition, for example. Okay, now, since 
John Enders developed this experiment, he used these monkey kidney cells called Vero cells. And that is by far the most common type of cells used in these experiments since that time for almost every virus and including you know, the alleged SARS-CoV-2. Now, normally to keep those cells alive, you give them full strength um, DMEM medium, which is a modified Eagle medium, okay? And you add to that something like 10% fetal bovine serum, which is a, like a protein source. And the cells do great and they, they actually grow so much that you have to thin them out. Um, because they overgrow their uh, containers. So you have to take them out, divide them into separate um, flasks mm -hmm. so that they, otherwise they overcrowd each other. But they grow beautifully. And the reason why they use them in the laboratory so much is they're really easy to grow mm -hmm. because sometimes mammalian cell cultures are very, um, you know, temperamental. <laughs> you know, think about like orchids and uh, these ones are more like ferns. Okay. Hard Got to it. Kill. Got it. So what they do when they do these so-called virus cultures or virus isolation experiments, and they call them both names, by the way, mm -hmm. is they, they take the nutrition down to a fraction of its level, right? So in other words, instead of you getting, you know, three meals a day, now you're just, just getting one meal a day. But starving the cell the same as amount yeah um and they lower the bovine serum as well okay so this of course puts stress on the cells in the culture now then the other thing they do which is really significant is they add antibiotics now there's really no reason to add antibiotics they say that it makes sure there's no bacterial contamination that ruining your results. But the thing is twofold. One is they use aseptic techniques because bacteria could ruin any tissue culture and they don't normally add antibiotics because they never have bacterial problems. Um, secondly, um, you can easily filter out the bacteria from the clinical sample, like the lung fluid. If you just put it through a filter with a small pore, only things the size of viruses can get through. No bacteria can get through. You know, maybe some bacteria spores could get through, but it's unlikely to cause a problem. And then the third thing is if you observe, like you look at the cell culture under a microscope later on, you can see if there's bacteria there because they're easy to see under a microscope. Um, and you'll know that they contaminated, so you could just disregard that sample. But they don't just put antibiotics, they put them at twice or three times the normal concentration. Wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yes. And this is, so I did um, a line-by-line -line analysis of one of these published articles um, that John Rappaport put on his blog a few weeks ago. And God, I love that dude. I, lo I love that dude. Yeah, <laughs> I've been trying to get him on my podcast forever. He's great. He yeah. I don't think he likes to do too many interviews, but, um, but he, you know, cause he's focused on his writing and uh, you know, in that protocol, they use twice the concentration of the antibiotics. And interestingly, these Vero cells are, kidney cells. They're from a monkey, but they're still kidney cells. The particular antibiotics that they normally use are toxic to the kidneys. And one of them, amphotericin, is really notoriously toxic. 
I mean, we, we used to call it amphoterable. You don't, it's an antifungal antibiotic and you don't give it to someone unless they're about to die. Wow. So they're putting this in the cell culture. So they never do a control experiment to show that the cells would actually get damaged just from that recipe without putting any fluid from any sick person in there. Mm-hmm. And the control experiment has been done three times now, most recently by Dr. Lanka again. And each time it, the same thing is they see the same cytopathic effects, the same particles under the electron microscope without any sample from a patient. So mm-hmm. in other words, there's no possible source of a virus there and they get the same exact results. And they say those results prove that there's a virus, which essentially is that over several days, the cell culture that they add, the antibiotics and the starvation diet and some lung fluid or some other clinical sample shows the CPEs or the basically damaged cytopathic effects. And they say, aha, there it is, there's proof of the virus. But it's not proof of the virus, it's just proof of damaged cells from poisoning. And this is where the big error in logic has come in that they've convinced themselves back in the 50s that this proved something, even though in the initial paper that they published, they actually said that it didn't prove this. Um, but later on, they just- By, in, by Enders' own admission too, right? He said yeah. that this is like, yeah, that's absurd. And you know, it's interesting because as I've been thinking about this more and more, the implications of what's happening in cell culture, first off, so disconnected from like true reality it's a cell that's isolated from any like living functioning system of a human being or animal or plant or what have you but then if there is any conclusion to be drawn from this it's that starving something and poisoning something is going to cause something to die or cause something to be diseased so you're absolutely right and that's like really two of the three causes of disease (laughs) right the other one being trauma but, you know, the starving is basically a nutrient deficiency. It could be total starvation, um, but that's uncommon. Uh, and then toxicity is the poisoning. So that is actually the cause of almost all disease. And of course, if you treat a cell culture that way, it's going to be diseased as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, so something that I've, I mean, I bet you have too, and I'm, that's why I'm asking this question. Something that I've struggled to like come to grips with is how have so many virologists, like basically all of them, missed the mark with regards to the what's happening in in these viral isolation experiments? How have so have how have it slipped underneath so many? Because when you get to the source of it, even some random ass dude like me who reads it, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how is this? Right. Well, Alec, let me ask you this. How, how did so many doctors miss the toxic effects of vaccines? How, how do so many climatologists, um, you know, see that the climate warming model is only based on computer simulations and actually not confirmed by any real world data? You know, there's many, many things like this. And when you are the person in the thick of it, right, like think about the whole, how does someone become a virologist? It's a very small field, only a subset of, you know, biology. And 
in order to do that, right, you basically you go to graduate school to a biology department that has virology uh, division. And it's not every school. Like, I don't think they had that at MIT, actually. Um, so you basically you decide on that kind of while you're in college, it's something that fascinates you, maybe, you know, someone died of AIDS in your family, or a lot of times there's a personal interest when people go into careers like this, same thing with medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and so you want to, I mean, this is how Stefan Lanka got involved in this is he wanted to, you know, work with viruses that were, could help people instead of just sea algae. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they already buy into this idea beforehand. It's like they're pre-screened uh, right now. Almost everybody already, feel, you know, believes yeah. this, right? Because we're taught this when we're very, very young and impressionable. Before, and we're never taught any experiments. We're just told this is the way it is. Even in medical school, they pretty much—that's how it goes. Yeah, it's, every, it's, it's like the, that's the basis. It's the foundation. Yeah. You wouldn't even, yeah, exactly. You would never question it. So they have this foundation. They don't question it. Then they go get into grad school, and they feel really lucky um, that they they got in. And so what do they do? They, they like have to get oriented to how to work in the lab. They probably have limited experience and they want to get their name on a paper. And so they get to help with one of these isolation experiments. But they're, they're basically an apprentice, right? They're not kind of sitting back and trying to understand all the implications, design experiments. They're an apprentice. They're learning the technique. They're taught this is how you isolate a virus. This is what vi we call virus isolation. And when you're, you know, that sort of uh, apprentice and you're looking up to your, your teacher, your mentor, they're successful, that's where you wanna be. You know, you don't ask basic questions like, hmm, that's not really what isolation is. Like, why are we using that word? Mm -hmm. Or like, hey, what, wouldn't it be better if we just try to get a virus directly from the sick person? Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> what if we use, you know, like that um, antibody affinity chromatography I mentioned before, like, oh, mm -hmm. why, don't we, why don't we take the virus out of the culture and put it through this, a column like this and purify it, right? Like they don't think of those ideas right at first. They instead, you know, be like, oh, wow. So wait, wait, what do I do next? I got to make yeah. sure I get this right. Let me write this down. You know, it's this kind of a thing. So then they, they learn it, they do it, they contribute, right? Then the manuscript gets submitted and they, and they get their name. They're like the 11th author, right? But they're, they're on the paper. It's their first major achievement. They feel proud. They made their, you know, boss happy, all this kind of stuff. So it reinforces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with all those positive rewards, where's the incentive to then once you master the technique to go back and reevaluate? Why would you do yeah. that? Yeah. Right? Especially because um, you already go into it with the, with the preconceived notions that it's like, this is fact, right? And yeah. then after that, you establish everything based on that fundamental flaw. So yeah, you would never turn around and question it. I mean, I guess the th same can be say said for any person just within allopathic medicine, right? Like it takes an experience or someone who's naturally inquisitive to go look and challenge the things that they've already established as their belief system, right? So, I mean, I guess it's just another piece of the human condition. You know, what, one thing that is interesting, and you know, this I think is really why 
what led Dr. Lanka to uncover this as a virologist is that there's like people that do work on bacteriophages or giant viruses and, and algae, and they, they're separate from the virologists who study disease in animals. And then the people who study exosomes are also separate, right? So it's like you got the exosome researchers and the bacteria and microorganism researchers, they do all the purification all the time, but they don't cross over to say, oh, hey, why do you guys studying animal viruses do a totally different technique? That's like a, that's like a military <laughs> uh, tactic though, too. Like uh, whether it's intentional or not, it's like this compartmentalization of information. Right? Yes. Like, oh, it's intentional, but yeah, you're right. That was, that was actually my next question. So like at the very tippy top of everything going on, actually let's back up. I got to ask this one first. I promised I would. So I actually touched on this with you the other day, asking you about it, what you think. So there's a lot of talk in with regards to the mRNA vaccines um, and their, the possibility that they shed or people that have been vaccinated are shedding something. Um, right, what are your we thoughts on that? A little earlier, right. Uh, talking about the divide and conquer strategy. Yes. So this is, this is what's tough with me, right. Is I have had so many people message me saying that they're experiencing issues with their menstrual cycles and they haven't been vaccinated. But the one that was really interesting to me and makes me think that it could be some form of bioresonance. I know there's no data to back any of this up. This is all speculation from really anyone right now. It's all speculation. Um, is that someone that has for sure that lives in Costa Rica that has not been around any vaccinated persons at all, for sure, is also experiencing weird menstrual issues. And so I've sort of said that it, that it's, it could be a function of bioresonance when I mean, a, a third or more of the, of the populations in developed yeah. countries. May I interrupt you there? Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want to, I don't want you to go too far uh, with, you know, different theories with this, because remember earlier we were talking about the, that COVID-19 is a psychological operation, right? And there's not really any prima facie evidence for it. Mm -hmm. Well, you could really need to apply the same reasoning to ideas that maybe we come up with in our community because mm -hmm. menstrual disorders are also pre-existing, right? And they're, they're also common. And there's, you know, it's important to be rigorous when you look at an issue like this, because once a rumor starts like that, you know, people near other vaccinated people are developing menstrual problems, then every woman who hears that who's against the vaccine is gonna, or maybe some even who, who were vaccinated or on the fence, they're gonna pay very close attention to what's going on with their cycle. And if there, anything weird happens, you know, they're off by two hours, they're gonna say, oh my gosh, this is from the vaccine. Like I actually had a, a client who was really convinced that they had this really horrible pain in their period they never had before. And that it was because in their workplace, a bunch of people had recently been vaccinated. And after spending a few minutes, I realized that the person had a kidney stone and it had absolutely nothing to do with the vaccine. It was from, you know, like working long hours and not drinking enough water, <laughs> you know, that kind of a, of a thing um, that it just happened. So, if we're to say that there's anything going on at all, we would really need to have some kind of evidence 
And so like, if I heard other people were, you know, like, oh, like people are sending me emails, they're having this problem. Well, we could easily develop a survey where we could just get some key information, like what exactly is the problem? When did it start? What is your exposure to people with the vaccine? Is there any other changes going on in your life, right? And then see, and then maybe like for one thing is like, how do we know there's any more menstrual problems now than there was a year ago, mm -hmm. right? Now there certainly are some things that are reported in people who are vaccinated that are real, mm -hmm. um, but those we have data on, even though it's voluntary reporting, it's an underestimate, but at least we have some systematic data because when they do those reporting forms, they have to put in some detailed information. So you could go to that data set and pull the information out and like just something on, you know, when did the symptoms develop in terms of when the person got injected. Mm. But with this vicarious exposure, are we talking about people who work with others? Are we talking about people who live together? Are we talking about people with intimate contact? You know, like we're we talking about just in the general milieu, <laughs> you know, uh, like, and then how many extra people are having menstrual problems compared to normal? What are they? You know, we'd need this information to know if there's even really a signal, right? Unless it just becomes so commonplace over time that it's obvious, but I don't think that's happening at all uh, because all the stories I hear just don't have enough information to really know if anything's going on. But if there, let's say that there was an increase in menstrual issues, like of a particular kind, well, then that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the vaccine because there are many, many things that could cause that, that could easily be present in the environment. Or in the I've even thought about the elements of fear though too, right? Like, cause like trauma oh, is a very real thing that so perpetuates disease. That, that's a great point. So there, there could be just like that, my loved one or my friend or my colleague is getting this problem. And then I have this sort of empathetic problem right? And, or I'm afraid that my loved ones are getting this vaccine and they're going to die. So then that fear manifests as physical illness. Like all these things can happen, of course. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the kind of thing that you could look at. Um, you know, like, let's say people had the same amount of time and proximity to, to someone at work as at home, but, but at home, they cared about the person and loved them. And at work, they were just a coworker. Right. And then so then you could see that, you know, maybe there's something to the nature of the relationship that there's an emotional component if the people, you know, with their loved one develop symptoms and the people at work didn't. Mm -hmm. But you can't without having the information like this is this is actually the real job of agencies like the CDC and the whole field of epidemiology. What they're supposed to do is when there's a report or a rumor of something affecting people's health, they go out and collect data. And then they can, from that data, say, hey, is, is something going on? Should we investigate it further? And then they can, they can do more experiments or other people can. But they're not functioning in that uh, role, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, at all. No, they're but, not. Um, but, you know, so it's important that we, you know, before you go jumping to conclusions or making recommendations about you know, um, like not doing business with vaccinated people or, you know, uh, requiring them to quarantine so they won't get others sick uh, because those are very divisive. Like I think, you know, a lot of 
uh, people who may have gotten vaccinated that vaccinated, they can still change their mind and come over to the side against tyranny. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, so I don't, I want, you know, I want to embrace all those people. And if they are going to suffer from the, you know, negative effects of the vaccine, I want to have as much compassion for them as I can. And, you know, this also goes to the, the sense, and, and I listened to um, Dr. Jennifer Daniels talk about this, and she is one of the most common sense rational uh, doctors in this space. And, you know, what she said is, listen, we're exposed to all kinds of stuff all the time around, we're, we're around vaccinated people shedding this and that and the other thing all the time. <laughs> And this is no different. It's like the important thing is you do what you have to do to stay healthy. Like if you drink enough water and have some ongoing cleansing, like by increasing your bowel movements and you reduce your exposure to toxic things like, you know, processed food and, and other things, then you're not going to get sick, you know, even if you're exposed to stuff, because you're going to be exposed to stuff, yeah. right? Because we've got, you know, geoengineering, nanoparticulates, We've got industrial chemicals, we've got agricultural chemicals, we've got indoor air pollution, outdoor air pollution, you know, underground pollution, yeah. <laughs> space pollution, right? It's like you're, you're inundated all the time. And if you manage yourself to be healthy, you'll be healthy. And, yeah, the, the, uh, there was like the, the treatment, if you will, or how you approach is still going to, it's not going to change, right? Like, such an interesting point. And, and I think it's the this goes with my, I guess, spiritual belief, the, the illusion of separation. And like, this perpetuates that this perpetuates uh, seeing other as some threat to us, even on, and you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, the holistic health community who knows that mind, body, spirit, health is everything that you just described, like that entire process. And we've been so frustrated with how the quote other side has been shielding themselves of us, scared of us, you know, not wanting to be around us. And now we're turning around and taking that exact same approach with regards to the shedding issue. And that's, what's so frustrating to me is that we are now perpetuating the lie of separation, the illusion of separation. I, I completely agree. And that's why I'm, you know, trying my best to counteract that in a, you know, in a diplomatic way, because I know that it comes from a good intention, you know, wanting to protect people um, and also disclose all the harm of this, you know, experimental genetic uh, injections. And we certainly want to, you know, convince or educate as many people as possible to avoid that. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's important not to divide people and not to contribute to the separation and isolation from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we, as you point out, you know, we are not each other's enemy. Um, you know, we're brothers and sisters. And if we could, you know, get back to that, then this will all get better quickly. Yeah. God, you know, what are from, from your perception of everything that's going on? Cause I know I asked about uh, the, the compartmentalization and you said it's intentional and that like triggered a thought within me. What are the, I guess, what is the intent, the ultimate end game for the nefarious actors or powers that be uh, behind everything that's going on right now? Cause you know, I was talking to Tommy John about this the other day 
it's not just the health thing. It's health. The health thing is one piece of it. They're, they're coming at us at all angles, right? Like what are, what is the end game here? What what are they trying to do? Well, I mean, that's a loaded question. I know. You know, it's uh, so I think that I can't tell you for certain, of course, because it's not, it's not my end game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, and it's not, I don't know that it's written for exactly explicitly in any of the documents that I've looked at the planning documents, which there are many, but I, I would say that it basically is about complete control, mm-hmm. like using humans and, and all the resources really of the natural world to serve your interests, whims, desires, and luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can run things how you want and it'll stay very smooth without any resistance or any meddling, right? And so all of the agendas in terms of uh, surveillance, transhumanism, um, limiting freedoms, moving everyone into dense uh, urban populations, Mm -hmm. uh, controlling all the means of production and innovation, you know, all of that will you know, result in that uh, agenda, essentially. Yeah, that's why that's why the population reduction is so important, because it's just much more difficult to manage, you know, 7 billion people than it is to manage a half a million people. Yeah, I've I've been on a really big uh, kick lately of just decentralization. And I've been telling people like decentralize your life in every which way possible and make yourself so resilient and, and uh, self-reliant that you, you don't have to buy into any of the systems that they want us to buy into. Cause that's, what's happening, right. Is they're, they're coming at us in so many angles. Now there's so many things in the mainstream media about how food prices are skyrocketing, you know, the, this oil pipeline had a cyber attack against it. And now they're going to talk about how there's not just going to be gas prices that go up, but gas shortages. Um, and that's why it's so unbelievably important. I guess this is a good question. What are, what are some things that some tools that, or, or an approach that people listening right now, I mean, cause that's, that shit that's going on is dark, but there is elements of light to this because I, I think of it as a type of dark night of the soul for humanity. And we can actually use that as a catalyst to create something positive for ourselves and for the people around us. What are, so what's your approach to that, I guess? Well, what we're really talking here is about a spiritual perception of what's going on in the world and that is going to be something that each individual needs to approach in their own unique way. And, you know, for me, it was a process of being really against spiritual life and uh, being a, you know, devout atheist and materialist uh, for much of my life until I, you know, had a convergence of life events that uh, allowed me to open up and look at things more objectively and, since that time, it's been very different. Mm -hmm. And doing this personal development work in my own way. And, you know, for me, I was introduced to a mentor uh, relatively early on, Neil Kramer. Uh, So I did have like some self-help type books and started meditating on my own and read The Power of Now and, 
you know, learned from various uh, gurus about mindfulness, like Thich Nhat Hanh, and experimented with different types of meditation. And then I started reading esoteric philosophy and started working with Neil Kramer, who specializes in that and Western esoteric spiritual philosophy predominantly. Um, and I basically, you know, just tried to do various approaches like a kind of a purification strategy to work on my trauma issues mm. and my behavior, work on my uh, equanimity, composure, handling different situations. You're so composed. I always say <laughs> like every interview, <laughs> I've said this a few times now, I was like the last person I would ever, ever want to get into an argument with is you because you're so even keeled. You stay composed and you stay like on the topic at hand so well. So, you know, I mean, I appreciate that. And uh, it's definitely something that I have, you know, put time and effort in. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I slip up now and then. But, you know, all of these things are essentially, you know, just try and become a better, more effective individual. And of course, as you do that, also your um, morality becomes stricter. Um, you know, you see things from a different perspective. You start to um, get in touch with or relate to uh, some kind of higher consciousness um, that there are a lot of different ways to conceptualize. And I don't want to pigeonhole anyone because some people come at this from a religious perspective and it still can achieve, you know, the same outcomes. And so that's why I say it's a very individualized thing. The important thing is that you're actually actively working on it, whatever mm -hmm. step along the way. And there are, you know, prescribed paths where increasing sophistication of tasks, but you can come upon this on yourself. And one thing that really helped me, and I encourage people out there to seek this is fellowship that you really accelerate your development by being part of a fellowship community where you're working with other people that may be at different stages along the path. Like some may be complete beginners and some may be quite advanced and that allows you to help each other and um, exchange information and ideas. And that, that is really a key thing. And this is something that it's better to do in person. So you need to find some people, but you can still do it, um, you know, at certain functions or events or conferences, uh, at least initially before you can, you know, make more connections and some places you live, you're going to find more people than others. But, you know, all of this kind of work is what allows you to have a different perspective and see that it's really based upon our own action, our own thought of how we experience what's going on in the world right now. And some people are consumed with fear and other people are able to see a lot of positive, a lot of, you know, and remain hopeful and optimistic for, you know, a different future because you can bring that about for yourself, mm -hmm. um, you know, and whether you'll, ultimately realize a vision that you have, right? We, we maybe don't have complete control about that, but if you have the right intentions and you put in the right effort and um, you take care of yourself and the others you're involved with, it's like, it's gonna work out the way that it's supposed to work out. Spot on, yeah. You know, it's interesting because 
I mean, people ask us all the time, like, oh, what do you, do you think this is going to happen in five years? This, this, and that. I'm like, okay, obviously our collective ability when we're all together with our setting our intention and our thoughts and our feelings and taking deliberate action towards something can affect change that is magnificent. But even if the collective of, of humanity brings into being something that is fucking awful, you can still create the conditions within yourself and those people around you where you are setting yourself up for success and setting yourself up for a fruitful and beneficial and peaceful life. Well, you know, I, I don't like the, this name, the law of attraction or that, you know, it, it can be subverted uh, among some new age philosophers, but it really is true. And what it really, what it says is that if you spend a lot of time thinking or planning something, that thing is more likely to be, to come to be. Yeah. Right. So if you are all gloom and doom and think about the worst totalitarian, you know, atrocities in five years, then you're actually contributing to bringing that about in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's important to like, you know, maybe be aware of what could happen or what the plan is from certain psychopathic, you know, adversaries. And they are there. <laughs> yeah, they are there, of course. But you know, you should envision a future for yourself that is something that you want in that context, right? Like for me, it's basically being totally separate. You know, like in The Brave New World, right? The Aldous Huxley uh, novel, there's the community of savages, right? And, uh, you know, this guy is like, you know, has to get special permission to be able to go visit them. But normally they're like, people are scared of them. In fact, they think they're dangerous, but they're, they're totally respectful people. <laughs> right? It's like, I, I'm going to be one of the savages living out outside of the, you know, the enclosed uh, mega city. That's all, I mean, they already set the condition for that anyway, because people think of people like you and I as dangerous. So we're good. We're already on that path. That's right. right. I'll be less dangerous from far away. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. These are, these are the last two questions uh, that I ask every guest. And uh, I'm excited to hear your answer on these. So whew, this is a loaded one. Why are we here? What is the purpose of this reality as as much as you want to answer that, as long as you want to go, as short as you want to go. I know we've already been going for a little bit over an hour. So why are we here? Sure. Well, um, my view is that, uh, you know, as Neil Kramer described it, uh, this is classroom earth. And uh, essentially our consciousness is having this experience in this realm, you know, the 3D earth realm or however you want to describe it in order to learn something important that will allow it to become more sophisticated and more advanced and, you know, at a higher level. And if you view life that way, right, it can be really enriching and you will be much less affected, you know, by suffering because you'll quickly realize that, oh, that's to teach me something as soon as I can figure out what the lesson is or what the communicated information is, then the suffering will be gone. I love that. It's cool. Cause I've, I've had, uh, other answers and it's all, everyone's saying the same thing in a different way, right? It's just a different <laughs> language of saying the same thing. It's so cool though. Um, okay. This is the last one. This is, this is my favorite. So if you had the opportunity to share a completely uncensored, unedited two to five minute message with the world, 
in some <laughs> hypothetical scenario, it would be shared on all mainstream news platforms somehow. Uh, <laughs> so like the whole world would hear it. <laughs> what would you say? Wow. Well, I, I definitely would not do it in song. Uh, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, I would really have to, I, I would, I'd be the guy that would spend um, a whole month planning word for word uh, every, you know, ounce of that time, what I was going to fill it with to make sure that it was not only the right information in that method message, but like communicated in a way that people could mm -hmm. take it in uh, because that's so important. But essentially I would want to help people understand that you know, the whole world we live in is completely upside down and the people who are running the world are acting against our own interest. And that if we just take a step back and turn off the TV, we can start to see the reality of you know, what nature intended for us and we can move towards a way of living that will you know, be one of abundance, of peace, prosperity, harmony, like all the things that we would all wish for, like the, the things that a uh, beauty pageant uh, winner would say that they want if they could wave a magic <laughs> wand, right? I guess they're already saying it on all the mainstream news platforms and nobody but, listens to people that do beauty pageants. So that's the issue, right? You know, the thing is, it's like we really could have a world like that pretty easily um, if we just embraced our true nature. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that it would be there'd be no conflict and no fighting and no difficulty, but um, there would nothing like what we have today with, you know, drones uh, blowing up schools and, uh, you know, all kinds of other, uh, you know, atrocities that we don't have to get into. Yeah. Thank you for that. Can I call you Andy? Is it cool enough now that I, like I can, I yeah, can call you? Yeah, no, okay. that's what I prefer. <laughs> okay. It's funny because, uh, <laughs> When Tommy, Joe, and I interviewed Dr. Cowan, uh, I started out by calling him Dr. Cowan. And he was like, please don't call me that. Just call me Tom. If I was a plumber, you wouldn't call me plumber, plumber Tom. <laughs> Just call me Tom. I was like, okay, so awesome. Andy, thank you for, for joining me. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Um, much love to you. And so I actually, this, this won't release in time, but are you going to have a replay for what you and Tom are doing in, in about a week or so? Well, what, you know, anyone who uh, registers will get uh, access to replay it. And okay. then after a couple of weeks, we'll put it out to the public. Okay, cool. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to, I've been pushing it on all my channels and I'll keep on pushing it because I think I'm, oh, I'm, okay. I'm excited for that. So um, if uh, by the time this comes out, it'll probably be like two or three weeks from when we're recording. So it'll be time for people to go check it out. Uh, definitely want to watch that. I don't even know what they're going to say yet because I haven't seen it myself, but I'm sure it's going to be great. So really excited for that. Andy, thank you for joining me. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Alec. It's good, uh, good to catch up with you. All right. See ya.